So now I would like us to turn our attention to the Word of God together today. If you have a Bible, you want to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 12 is the text that we'll be working through together. As you find your way there, just a few introductory remarks here. I love a good story. I love a good story. I love a good movie. And so the movies that I love the most are movies that they will show you at the very beginning. The, the, the show's just begun. At the very beginning, they'll show you the end of the story. Have you seen a movie like that? It'll tell you the end of the story, and you wonder, what? The main character passed away or something like that? Like, there was a huge tragedy or whatever. So they'll show you the end of the story first, and then they will come back and then begin to unpack this story leading to the end of the movie. Now you will know how the end got to what it was. Well, that will be a little bit the way I'll preach this sermon today. I will tell you how I will end my sermon, just so that you know what the ending looks like, and maybe you'll decide, ah, it's not worth listening to. Uh, I'll tell you the end first, and then after I tell you the end, and then we'll now begin to unpack. Now, today's text, Jesus, in John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding, at a wedding in a place called Cana, a small little village there. And Jesus will turn water into wine. And many of you would know this story. Jesus turned water into wine. And he did many miraculous signs and wonders. During the course of his ministry, Jesus did. And you will see the multiple uh, miracles that Jesus uh, did throughout our reading of, in our study of the Gospel of John. And today in particular, we'll be looking at this turning water into wine. Now, John the Apostle, the one who's writing this book, was basically, he was one of the disciples of Jesus. And as he's writing this story after the fact, he will highlight various signs and miraculous signs that Jesus performed. But what John does not do, he does not articulate every single miracle that Jesus did. He doesn't do that. The question is why? Why does he not articulate there will be too many. And so he will say in John chapter 20, John 20 verse 30 to 31, John will say, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of, of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that we are going to engage as we walk through this gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the stories, the miraculous signs, including the one we are just about to engage today, the miraculous signs that John is highlighting in his gospel have been written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that means the purpose for this story is that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now you may say, well, I already believe in Jesus, you may say. I'm already a Christian. I've given my life over to Christ. Yeah, but my hope, my hope after this sermon is that you might believe in him more confidently. Yeah, I know you believe in Jesus, but I hope that you believe in him more confidently, more wholeheartedly, unreservedly, so that your belief is not just theoretical, 
But your belief in Jesus will also be practical in your day-to-day -day life is what I hope you will get at the end of this sermon. So let's read the text, John chapter 2, verse 1 to 12, and then we'll unpack, we'll break it down into four, four sections here. Not eight, like last week, not 60, or four today. And some of you who are here last week, you know there was, a, there was an attempt to make a joke that didn't work. If you missed it, yeah, you didn't miss much. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jar jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. There ends the reading of God's word. So four points, and the four points that I will zero in on, will look at something, this passage will say something about the son, Jesus, We'll say something about the wine, of course. It'll say something about the jars that were there, and we'll say something about the bridegroom. So the sun, the wine, the jars, and the bridegroom. So the first point, the sun. Now, Jesus was invited to come to this remarkable wedding. Now, wedding in the, weddings in the ancient world were not like weddings here today. So I'll give you an example of a wedding in other parts outside of North America. So I come from Kenya. And so in, in Africa, if I was to get married, if you were to get married, you wouldn't have necessarily 150 people who come to your wedding. You see here in North America, 150 people coming to a wedding, yeah, that's a big wedding. 200 people, yeah, that's a big wedding, right? Well, in Africa, that's a small wedding. That's a teeny wedding. <laughs> this, entire, this entire sanctuary would be full, and those who are watching on video, and particularly those who are at Central Abbotsford, where you are right now, that entire sanctuary will be full of people. A small wedding is 500 people in Africa. That's a small wedding. You're talking a thousand people. They'll slaughter a cow, even two, and tons of chickens and goats and everything. 
And then they'll invite everybody to come. So for example, you may not necessarily have received an invite from the bride or the groom personally, but your friend would have been invited. And so your friend would say, hey, so-and-so is getting married. Oh, let's go to the wedding. And so you'll show up. And then you'd show up at the reception and you'll expect there to be some food. And there would be some food. Yeah, Jesus is right. Yeah, everybody shows up. Everybody shows up. See, in the first century, in the first century, weddings were the most grand event in the life of any individual. The ceremony would take place late in the night. So the bride and groom would be betrothed to one another. They're engaged. And then this engagement um, period could last no less than two months could go, almost a year, and everybody will assume that these two are already married. They're not living together yet, but they're betrothed. There's a promise that they'll be together. And so when their, when their wedding day comes, in the evening, the groom and his, and his guys and his family would light some lanterns and they will make noise. They're singing, they're dancing, they're going around the community. I'm sure Arun would tell you in Punjab is the same thing. When there's a wedding, everybody knows there's a wedding happening. There's singing and jubilation, but it's at night. And so the groom would come at night to the bride's home with his people and the entourage. And then there'll be speeches and the passing over. Now the, the, the bride is leaving her home and coming, to the, coming with the groom. And then together the groom will take the bride to now what will be their home. And they will take the longest route. Again, noise and singing and lights and lanterns. And everybody is just celebrating and cheering. And people who might know a relative, they will join the party. Why? There's food there. And so they'll all show up at the groom's place where the bride and groom will be now. You see, in North America would say, okay, so after the, 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 the reception and maybe you had that dance or whatever it is you did, you would now go on your honeymoon, right? Well, in the first century, it wasn't like they were going for a honeymoon. No, they will have an open house for a week. An entire week, seven days. But you may think, oh, this open house, like guests all over seven days. The bride and groom would be treated like royalty. They will wear robes, they will have a crown. Their word is gold. Their word is law. Whatever they wanted, they got. And people would just be showering them with gifts and accolades and, and honor. It's a big deal. A very big deal. Many would go through life without ever again experiencing such attention. This is how grand weddings were. Now, it was upon the groom's family to make sure that there was enough wine to go around. It was upon the groom's family to know there's enough food to feed all these people for seven days, an entire week. So now in this particular story, we find that, hey, you know what? The wine, ran, uh, the wine runs out. And how do we know the wine ran out? Yeah, because Mary was kind of like, she's the one who comes to Jesus and says, hey, they have run out of wine. Now, how does Mary know it is possible? Now, this we're just assuming, the scriptures are silent here, but it kind of feels like Mary 
is involved behind the scenes in this wedding. And Jesus is also invited maybe because he is part of the family. So it could be, I'm not saying that it is, but it could be that this is a family wedding or a very close friend's wedding and Mary's very much involved and she realizes they've run out of wine. And so she comes and then she tells Jesus, hey, the wine is all gone. And we can tell that Mary has some sort of authority or say here. Why? Because she will tell the servants to do what Jesus tells them to do. In other words, she has this authority to tell the servants what to do. So she's involved in one way, shape or form. Now, her concern about the wine is, cannot be overstated. She is distressed. And why is she distressed? Because, my goodness, wine running out in a wedding is a big deal. Wine was a sign of joy. Wine was a sign of celebration. Wine was a sign of jubilation. Basically, wine was a sign of life. Wine was a big deal. And to boot, where are they? They are in Cana in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a district or a region. It's almost like the Fraser Valley is a region. So the Fraser Valley, you have all sorts of cities. You have Chilliwack and Fraser Valley Hope, Boston Bar, Fraser Valley, Abbotsford and Delta and Vancouver. All, we are in the Fraser Valley. So Cana is a small little town in the region of Galilee. And in Galilee... The number one, the number one industry in Galilee was winemaking. So this is wine country, and this family has run out of wine. Running out of wine could lead to the bride's family suing the groom's family. That's how big a big a deal it was. So when Mary comes and tells Jesus, uh, the wine is gone. Her distress is legit. Everybody will remember that that is the wedding where the wine ran out. This is embarrassing. You see, a number of years ago, I would say about 25 years ago, I attended a wedding. I was debating whether I should tell you this story or not, but I will. <laughs> so, I was in Africa. So a friend of mine was getting married. I was living in the city. And so we had to take a bus into the country to a smaller town where he was getting married. I found a bride and everything. It was great. He asked me to be the best man. I was like, okay, totally fine. So we took, take an eight-hour bus ride. We get to the city. And then the next morning was his wedding. And it was hot and humid. And we, we in our ties and our suits and everything, we go to the church. We hardly ate dinner the previous night. The next morning, we barely had breakfast. I was so hungry. And there we were, and the wedding ceremony was long. It wasn't like 30 minutes here. Like, this was like two to three hours. You're in this wedding ceremony, and I was so hungry, and my tummy was just growling. Anyway, so I was waiting. That was one of the times when I thanked God I was in the wedding bridal party because you get to go first. So they were serving fish and chicken. And now remember I told you it was hot, right? Yeah, and the people who were making the food had left the chicken out in the sun a little long. Now I didn't know this. I didn't know this. So now we go and we line up and I grab the food and I'm hungry, man. I'm just having a good old time. Everybody's lined up. Like remember, weddings in Africa, like everybody in their dog shows up. So the line is long, but I mean, I'm in bridal party. 
But then the plan was, I was to board a bus that evening and go back to the city eight hour ride. So, <laughs> wedding is finished, I board the bus. In the evening, it was a night bus, and we're going to go all the way down to Nairobi. Now, the road we're taking, they're bandits, and it's so dark, no street lights, nothing. It's just the, the vehicles that are passing the headlights. And it's so dark, and there are bandits there who are waiting for any broken car vehicle. I mean, if your car breaks down, they'll come and they'll jump you and all those pieces. So we can't stop. So I am on this bus, and I'm enjoying my ride. All of a sudden, uh, yeah. And so I'm like, I can't. This is an express train that cannot be stopped. <laughs> and I get up and I go to the driver. Uh, dude, we gotta stop. And he's like, no, we are not. I will spare you the details. <laughs> Suffice to say, all my friends, every time we meet and we are having a conversation, we all look at each other, oh, you remember so-and-so's wedding. <laughs> that food, or oh, that chicken. Yeah, I was scarred for life. <laughs> if you want to know the, the remainder of that story, you'll have to buy me coffee first. <laughs> the social embarrassment, the point here being, when the food goes sideways, when the wine runs out, the social embarrassment, you will remember 25 years later that the wine ran out, the food was bad, there's a possible lawsuit. So Mary now comes to her firstborn son, Jesus, because it is possible that Jesus was a resourceful guy. And so Jesus will probably take care of business, he will take care of what is going on here. Like, okay, Jesus, they've run out of wine, this is not good, this is not good. And so she's hoping that her firstborn son, who's been resourceful all these years, is going to respond in kind and say, okay, guys, we got to go find wine. I mean, we are in Napa Valley of Galilee, so we will find some wine here. Well, how does Jesus respond? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That's a very strange answer to your mom, woman. God try calling your mom woman. <laughs> this Thanksgiving, that will not go well. <laughs> you see, the English will read woman and it kind of reads with a little bit of a stick to it, but in the first century, it wasn't necessarily rude or abusive. It was almost like saying, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. There's no stick to it. But why is Jesus giving this very interesting Answer, And this is why Jesus is giving an interesting answer. The reason being, he, Jesus is now about to distinguish himself a little bit. All these years, I've been your son, Mary. It's been a mother-son relationship. But now my mission is about to begin. And I need to now distinguish myself a little bit. When he says, my hour has not come. What hour? To do what? The hour that Jesus is mentioning here is his hour when he's now going to the cross. 
to die on the cross. See, with Mary, Mary was looking and seeing the, the immediate challenge. And the immediate challenge is there's no wine. Jesus saw what was going on here and he saw a deeper issue. And what deeper issue? You know, you and I, there are times when life is good and everything, happen, everything is going fine and then the wine runs out, meaning the money runs out. The health runs out. Our social standing runs out. Our friends dry up. They used to come. They used to call. They were on Facebook and, and, and they were liking my posts and they are no longer there. We used to eat and drink and, and sleep in warm beds and then the economy turned and I had a variable mortgage and now I have no home. There are times when the wine dries up. When your name is no longer in lights, what happens when your favor with God runs out also? What happens when your favor with God runs out? See, God is patient, not willing that anyone should perish, but that all would come to repentance, but... But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So yeah, we may make merry and have fun and not have anything to do with God. But one day this God will come and require an accounting. What happens when the wine runs out there? See, Jesus saw more than what Mary was seeing. And so he was saying, my hour has not come. My hour to deal with when the money runs out and the health goes sideways and the relationships fall apart and, you're, and you're, you lose your significance. My hour has not come yet. What is Jesus alluding to here? Jesus is basically now beginning to reveal who he is and alluding to his mission. His mission as the Messiah. His mission as the one who addresses the seasons when the wine dries up. Not just the wine of the wedding. But when life itself dries up. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he do this? So that his disciples would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God... And that by believing, they might have life in his name. Second point, the wine. This one's, the next points will be quicker than the first. The wine. So, as I said earlier, wine was a symbol of life. Wine was a symbol of joy. But the wine has dried up. So what does Jesus do? Mary tells the servants, do whatever he asks you. So I'm assuming, Mary was assuming, okay, Jesus is a resourceful guy. I've told him that the wine is gone. Uh, he's given me the response. I don't know if I understand what he meant. So I'll just tell the, the, the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do. Maybe he'll sort it out. So Mary has gone off to take care of other things. Jesus then tells the, the, uh, the, the servants, fill these jars. And they begin to fill the jars now. John will tell us there were six jars there, six of them. 
each jar was 20 to 30 gallons, would hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. Now, do you know how much water that is? That's a ton of water. We are talking about 80 to 120 liters per, per jar. So let us assume, let us assume that each of those jars was 30 gallons. Let's go with the high number, 30 gallons, okay? So if it were 30 gallons, 30 gallons will be able to fill 150 bottles of wine. If you were to bottle the wine that Jesus made, each jar would fill 150 bottles of wine. There were six of them. So, each, so if each of them was 30 gallons, Jesus produced miraculously 900 bottles of wine. 900. Like that. So how much would 900 um, bottles, of, bottles of wine cost? So let's say it was just nothing spectacular, nothing to write home about. It's just like the wine you'd find at Savon. You know, you pay 20 bucks, 30 bucks at the most. Maybe some of you buy some wine for Thanksgiving. Maybe spend 20 bucks, 30 bucks or whatever for wine. If it was 20 to $30, yeah, Jesus basically dropped maybe close to 20 grand right there on wine. But this is Jesus we are talking about here. He's not just going to make $20 wine here. I was reading an article that spoke about in, in France, there was, a, there was a heist that took place. 25 individuals were arrested, and these 25 individuals were part of a gang that would break into high-end restaurants and steal the best wine. And so the French police were able to get back all the wine that had been stolen, 900 bottles with a total value of $6 million. $6 million. And some of the wine stolen was made by the best wineries on the planet in France. One of those wineries made the, the most expensive bottle of wine, which a regular bottle cost $558,000 for one. For one. So think 900 of them. You're now close to half a billion dollars. In other words, Jesus told the servants to fill the jars to the brim. No tricks here. And the jars were filled to the brim and then he asked them to draw some and take to the, to the master of ceremonies, let him taste. And the master of ceremonies was wowed when he tasted them. Now remember, they're in wine country. Galilee was known for producing wine, so they would know good wine. This guy tastes the wine, calls the bridegroom and says, dude, we usually serve the best first and then we leave the, the not so good later. But you serve the best for last. This could have been a $6,000 bottle or maybe one that was half a million 
worth. 900 bottles is what Jesus provided here. He lavished blessing and grace above and beyond expectation. Why did he do this? Why did Jesus do this? So that his disciples would believe that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. Third, the jars. So these big jars that we've been talking about, why were they there? Why were these jars there? What was their purpose? Well, Jews believed in uh, ceremonial cleansing, purification. So you always had to make yourself pure before God. And part of your purification was you needed to wash your hands before a meal. So of course you can see why they had these six jars that are so big, 30 gallons each, 20 to 30 each, filled with water so that people can wash their hands and ceremoniously clean themselves before they eat. Why? They want to be good before God. They want to be pure before God. So Jesus is watching all these things happening. Remember, these jars were meant for a religious rite, a religious practice. Jesus is seated there. Now, you are not supposed to contaminate those jars. You are not to make them ceremoniously unclean by putting something else in there, no. So Jesus is just there watching, and then he tells the guys, okay, fill these things with water. And so you must, the guys might be wondering, okay, so there's no wine, and he's telling us to fill the water that we used to wash our hands. Like, why? I mean, he told us to do it. Okay, fine. Now, this is about 600, 700 liters of water, and there's no tap, so they're busy putting the, putting the water, putting the water in the jars. Water that was meant to wash hands to purify people. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus turns the water into wine. What was he trying to communicate? And the thing that Jesus is trying to communicate here is, I am the one who purifies. I have come to be the one who will purify you. You are washing your hands externally. Now you will drink from me. I will purify you through and through, once for all, with my blood on the cross. And so he puts the wine in the jars that were meant to purify people. Jesus is saying something about himself here. And the disciples are busy watching. And the servants are watching. The best wine. 900 bottles in these containers. With a statement to say, I am the one who purifies. I am the source of life. I am the one who purifies. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he do this? So that his disciples will believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, they would have life in his name. Finally, the groom. Oh, the groom. He's excited. 
It's his wedding week. His bride is there. The family is there. Friends are there. Everybody and their dog is there. Celebrating and everything. He has no idea. None. But his goose is cooked. He has no idea that the wine is done. He has no idea that he's staring at a tragedy. What was a dream wedding is about to become a massive disaster where him and his bride might be shunned by the entire community. He had no idea what's going on. None whatsoever. So Mary comes, talks to Jesus. Jesus sees what's going on over here. And what does Jesus do? He turns the water into wine, right? And after turning the water into wine, tells the servants, hey, scoop some and take it to the master of ceremonies. Now, the master of ceremonies, his job was to make sure that there was enough food, the wine was flowing, everybody was having a good old time, and the bride and groom are just being loved and pampered and taken care of. That was his job. But the wine is done. He has no idea either that the wine is gone. He's thinking, oh, the good wine is finished, maybe the bad one is coming. He has no idea that there is no wine, period. So he tastes the wine that the servants who knew what Jesus has just done. Taste the wine, it's like, my goodness. Hey, Mr. Groom, show up here. Dude, what in the world? We bring out the best wine first. Everybody knows this. And then the bad wine later. But you did the opposite. You brought the bad wine first. And now you've saved the good one for last. What in the world? In other words, he is praising the groom for something the groom did not even do. The groom is receiving accolades for something he had no idea. What did Jesus do for you? But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, wallowing in our sin and in our filth, Busy gorging ourselves with wickedness and evil. What did Jesus do? He died for you. So in other words, in this wedding, what did Jesus do here for the groom? He clothed the groom with honor. And yet the groom had dropped the ball royally. He did not have enough wine for everybody. Jesus covered it. Jesus saved the best for last. See, this is what Jesus does, doesn't he? Isn't it? When the wine of life dries up, when our money goes, because the economy is what it is, when our health goes, when our employment goes, when our status goes, when our relationships go, when life itself goes, what did Jesus do? 
He clothes us with righteousness, does he not? So when, when you die and you die in Christ, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, what does God do? He looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant, come in. Why are you faithful? Why are you? Come in, my righteous son, daughter, come in. Why are you righteous? Why are you? You want. The righteousness that is yours and the righteousness that is mine is Christ's. And he has decided to clothe you with his righteousness. Why does Jesus do this? So that his disciples would, love, would believe that he is the son of God, that he is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, they may have life in his name. So let's recap here. As the son, Jesus saw beyond the immediate needs. Jesus saw beyond the immediate needs that Mary was seeing. And Jesus saw a greater need. His hour to address that greater need had not come yet. And so he decides, I will use this wedding as a type and shadow of what I have come to do. Second, the wine. Well, he provides the best wine and in great abundance. When Jesus gives life, man, he gives life to the full. He does. Not only that, the jars. Yeah, these little rituals that we have to cleanse ourselves. Jesus says, forget the rituals. I will be the one who cleanses you. And not only that, for the groom, oh, Jesus will clothe you with his righteousness. Undeservingly for you and me. So reflecting upon what had happened, this is now what John says at the end of the story in verse 11. John will say, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana in Galilee. This was the first of his signs. Why? He manifested his glory, meaning he now revealed who he was. He manifested his glory. Glory meaning Oh, he is significantly other. He is different from anything you know. And his disciples, John included, believed in him. It doesn't mean that the disciples had not yet believed because they were already disciples when they showed up, right? It doesn't mean that they really didn't believe in him. They probably believed in him theoretically. But now, oh, they believe him deeper. Why? They believe him more confidently, more wholeheartedly. They were now more convinced. But he is who he said he is. Yes, did they have the full picture? No. But did they, did they fully believe in who? Yes, they did. Jesus did many miracles, many wonders he did. And John reminded us at the very beginning of my sermon, chapter 20, John was saying, yeah, I've not written everything. So he handpicked some, including this one. He handpicked. Why? John 20, 31. These are written so that you and me, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And that by believing, 
you may have life. And this belief is not just theoretical. This belief is now practical in your life right now. When your wine is drying up, when the gas prices are what they are, when your health is what it is, when your business is going where it is, and maybe things are going well for you right now. But guess what? In this life, your wine will dry up. It will. Your wine will dry up. You probably are making hay right now. Oh, it will dry up. What happens there? There is one. There is one who saves the best wine for last. Because this one is known to give eternal life. So even if our wine dries up in this side of eternity, ha, make no mistake, there is better wine coming when he comes back. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the reminder that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Father, would you help us believe? Would you help us believe? And Lord, for the many here whose wine has dried up, whose wineskins are now dry, financially, health-wise, relationally, Lord, would you remind us that you have saved the best wine for last. May this be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name, and God's people said,